All right, so instead of reading the whole text this morning, we're going to take it in chunks because this morning we're dealing with the difficult topic of uh, God's justice, and in a sense we're looking at his wrath, his condemnation that's going to come back uh, in the scene here of this question and answer that we've had between the prophet Habakkuk and the Lord in dealing with God's people, Israel, and the injustice that's going on among his people and uh, God's instrument of discipline on his people, which is Babylon, but the reconciliation, too, of God using a nation more wicked than Israel to discipline them. So we come this morning to a passage that I'll say is answers. We're finally getting answers to our questions. And we're just going to read a few verses to start off with. We're going to start back in verse 4. We'll go to the beginning part of verse 6 in chapter 2. The word of the Lord says this, Behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Right? There's our verse, our foundational verse. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, that is Babylon, with scoffing and riddles, for him, this is the word of the Lord. Anybody ever uh, deal with schoolyard bullies back in the day when you were in school? You deal with a bully. I dealt with bullies in middle school, right? A word that comes to mind when I think of bullies is that untouchable, right? They think they are untouchable. I'm going to throw a couple names out there. Maybe you'll be familiar uh, with these two names: uh, a boy named Scut Farkas and Grover. Dill, two infamous bullies. Do y'all recall which movie Scut Farkas and Grover Dill were from? A Christmas Story, okay? Back in 1983, the movie A Christmas Story came out. Uh, Starting around Thanksgiving every year, TNT or TMC or one of those channels will run A Christmas Story on repeat, probably all the way to Christmas Day, maybe even to New Year's Day, where you will meet these, again, two infamous bullies, Scut Farkas, right, the tall, lanky, red-headed kid, and Grover Dill, his little shorter friend, uh, that terrorized the main character who was, what, Ralphie Parker. What was Ralphie Parker's goal at Christmas time? He's going to get a Red Ryder BB gun, right? That was his whole goal. These, these two bullies felt they were untouchable. Uh, pride, arrogant, haughty. All ill-gotten confidence filled their desire to torment other students, especially, right, little Ralphie Parker. They were both overconfident in their abilities. If you recall the scene, uh, Ralphie's with his two other buddies and, and his little brother who's dressed up like an Eskimo is kind of a little bit far behind. They're walking in the snow. There's, there's the plywood fence along their side, and they're just having a conversation. And out comes from behind, right, the infamous Scut Farkas, the red-headed, tall, mean bully, pursuing them, and as they run from him, Groverdale comes uh, the opposite direction, jumping over the dumpsters at them. Their pride and egos were overinflated until the one day what they caught Ralphie in a bad mood. And what happened? Ralphie just beat the tar out of them and said a few words that he probably shouldn't have said. In Habakkuk, our, our bully that we've been dealing with is Babylon. It's, it's the Babylonian Empire. And at this point now, we've moved to the place where Babylon is directly in the sights of God. 
Although God is powerful enough, we've seen in His sovereignty as we've traveled through this book, He's powerful enough to use this bully, that is Babylon, to purify His own covenant people, that is Israel. Babylon will ultimately pay for their own sin and pride, for their wickedness. Habakkuk now begins to turn the, the tide towards this, towards hope. This is a message of hope. Much like when Ralphie Parker right, laid a whooping down on Scott Farkas out in the snow. Babylon, we can think of Babylon has theirs coming. The Apostle Paul actually grants us a glimpse of this in the simple statement that he says towards the end of his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 7. This isn't in your notes, but Paul says this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, do not be deceived. What? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. And that brings us to our main idea God provides answers to Habakkuk's deepest questions. God provides answers to Habakkuk's deepest question. Habakkuk has asked a question of God. Uh, That was what we visited in the first week. He's been perplexed by the Lord's response. He's waited upon God. And the answer to his deepest question now comes to light. Again, in the words of the Apostle Paul, God's justice will not what? Be mocked. God will not be mocked. Let's rewind a bit. Let's go back to uh, chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 1 to 3. This is going to set our context. Context is important. This is Habakkuk speaking initially. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, that's the Lord he's speaking to, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So where's Habakkuk, right? He's, he's waiting patiently on the Lord in kind of this stand, his watch post. And then it says, and the Lord answered me. We learned this last week. Write the vision. Make it plain. I I like on tablets. Why on tablets? Because tablets are long-lasting, okay? What the Lord is saying is this is going to take a bit. Make sure you etch this in stone so that it doesn't get destroyed by the elements. Why write it on tablets? So he may run who reads it. What is that that he reads? We're going to get to that. We didn't read them. There's going to be five woes we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with God's justice and wrath this morning. Verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, what was the instruction last week? Wait for it, right? Be patient. No one likes to be patient, including myself. Suffer for a long time. It will surely come. The Lord says it will not delay. It's going to come at God's appointed time. And so, Habakkuk, get the vision, Habakkuk is on his stand, he's waiting upon the Lord, the Lord speaks his instruction, make clear what is to come, make sure everybody knows what I'm doing, uh, and this is the clear instruction, okay, the bully will not win, because God ultimately does. If there's anything you walk away with this morning, remember this, I've said this a million times in my preaching, that God wins the end. That's the point of what we're getting at this morning, but we've got to wrestle through some stuff in this text. And the first thing we're going to look at is this, is, is the condition of Babylon, and probably a condition that many of us struggle, struggle with. It's the danger of pride. The danger of pride. If you've read in Scripture, you'll know that the Bible has a lot to say about what? Pride, doesn't it? A lot to say about arrogance and pride. Proverbs 16, 18 probably one of the most famous statements on pride, says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, that's an arrogant spirit, before a fall. 
Verse 4, uh, as you know, the righteous shall live by his faith. There's actually a, a statement right before that in the same verse. It's kind of been our foundational, our theme verse as we've gone through uh, these first two chapters of Habakkuk. It says this. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5. If you look to the screens, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. This is speaking of Babylon. Puffed up, right? Uh, I know when I got picked on in middle school, uh, this kid's picking on me. What did I do? I puffed up my chest and I made myself look kind of big. Okay, his soul is puffed up. So Babylon is prideful. They're, they're making themselves look big. It's not upright within him, it says. But the righteous shall live by his faith. There's our phrase. Now it's another description of Babylon. Moreover, it says wine is a traitor. If you have the New Living Translation, it might say wealth is a traitor. An arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now there's two interesting word choices within this section. Again, that first one I'm going to hit on is his soul is puffed up. The original word used here is the same word that we would use for tumor. Okay, but the interesting thing about this word, I'm not trying to be funny here, this is actually like the literal meaning of this word puffed up, is a not just a general tumor, but it's a tumor in your rear end. Isn't that an interesting way to describe uh, Babylon? I kind of wish the English translation would just translate that one literally. Wouldn't it be fun? Pride... What is God saying here? Pride is like something cancerous, taking nutrients and life from other much-needed body parts, consuming all that it's in contact with, and spreading throughout the rest of the body. Oftentimes, tumors or or cancer, they're they're under the surface. Many are caught off guard when they find one, or, or a doctor discovers a tumor, like a cancerous tumor in a scan. This is the description of the enemy of God's people. Like a puffed up tumor. Habakkuk gives us another interesting word. Gives us another description. He says, it says, moreover, wine is a traitor. Why that word there? Because they're deceived. Babylon is is so prideful and arrogant, they're deceived like someone who's drunk on wine. Okay, Maybe you've been around a drunk person before. And drunk people, what they do things that they wouldn't normally do if they were sober, right? Like there's, you go on Instagram or social media or YouTube, and there's a million of what we would call fail videos, which are generally people who are drunk, overconfident in some sort of substance that they've put in their body. And so they're like up on the roof of a house, and they're going to jump off on a table down. And it never ends well, does it? They're, they're overconfident. Why? Because... They're, they're intoxicated with some sort of substance that tells them, hey, you're going to be okay if you do this. That's a, that's a description that we see of Babylon, that, that they're, they're puffed up with, with drunkenness. They're, they're overconfident. Right? Someone who's, who's drunk is not in their right mind. They act in ways they normally wouldn't. Drunkenness gives people this false confidence. I remember when I was, I had to do driving school when I was 16, and they made us 
watch this terrible movie about car accidents and stuff, and they had a, a movie in there on, on about driving drunk, and one of the things that, uh, that this interviewer interviewed a guy, and he says, I think I drive better when I'm drunk, right? That's not true, is it? So Babylon has this false confidence. Lastly, we see another description of their pride. Their pride is like someone who's, who's wealthy and trusts in their money for security. But he collects and he saves and he puts away, but he wants more and more and more. It's never enough. I mean, for my very first paycheck when I was 16 years old, right, you get the first one, you see how much Uncle Sam takes out and then the state, and then you have all these little taxes and, and fees and everything that come out. And what do you say? Oh, man, I need a little bit more. Then you get your next paycheck. I need a little bit more and more and more. It's never enough. And, and money never provides security that you think you may have because even if you did build up a savings account, which is wise and good, uh, the money that you had in there a year ago, guess what? Today, if you have the same exact amount of money, you've actually lost money because it's lost its value over the past year drastically, hasn't it? Like go buy some steaks in the grocery store, and you'll find out how much your dollar has been devalued over the last year. There's, we have this false sense of security when we have a pile of cash there that everything's going to be okay, but over time, a year over year, that money, if it just stays exactly the same, is actually losing its value. You're losing security that you think you have. And so inflation can erode away the value of wealth. Thieves can steal it, Right? How many of you get like a million phone scam calls a day? A phone scam can snatch it away. The, ba- the Babylonians have false security in their power and wealth and literally in their wine consumption. But no amount of pride, power, prestige, or worldly position can save a person from this. This is what we're dealing with this morning. The justice of God. The justice of God. Which brings us to our second point. Condemnation. We're going to look at five woes, okay? Now, I hope you guys wore like your workout outfits this morning. We're running through this text. We're going to sprint through this text this morning. Okay, I'm going to be talking like a million miles an hour. We're going to be moving quickly through this text. So I hope you're ready for, you guys ready for a workout? Your heart rate's going to increase? Okay. There's going to be good news at the end, I promise you. Okay, but it's going to get sticky here for these next few points, okay? So we're looking at five woes. We're going to look at the second or the first part of verse 6 says this, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? That's the nations that have been subdued uh, by Babylon. Take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, I'm going to leave it hanging there because we're going to read these woes as we move through each of our next five points. The very people that have been obliterated by Babylon's power and thirst for wealth will have the final say. The righteous, what? Shall live by his faith. What is that? Confidence and trust in the sure promises of God. That God is who he says he is. That God is unchanging. The faithful will survive the justice of God. And the wicked, this is the message here, the wicked will perish under his just judgment. And so we see first, our first woe, we see a debt to be paid. A debt to be paid. We're going to look at the second part of verse 6 and go to verse 8. It says this, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. 
Here it is. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. I want to be clear. Uh, oftentimes Christians now are using like karma-like terms. You know what I mean by like karma? Like when we say, like what goes around comes around. That's not the way God works. God doesn't work in a, in a karma-like fashion. God is sure and He is sovereign. He's consistent. This text conveys this. It's the sure justice of God. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. You can't... This is, this is a summary of what Babylon has done. They have piled up a debt of wickedness to the Lord. You can't pile up a debt and fail to repay it, right? Another lesson I learned as a, as a young man after I got my first paycheck, then I started going to college when I was 18, and there was these friendly guys from a bank called Citibank sitting there. You ever heard of them before? Who offered me this really nice credit card for, with a limit of $500, and man, I went and swiped that first time, that first purchase, and no money came out of my own bank account. I didn't spend a dime. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to swipe this thing again. Soon enough, I racked up, you know, 500 bucks, limit reached. But you know what happens? What? The bill comes, and you got to pay your debt, don't you? You got to pay that back. You can't pile up a debt and fail to repay. Babylon has piled up a debt of wickedness towards the nations they have plundered and conquered, and especially this, a debt of unrighteousness in the face of our holy God. God is perfectly holy and righteous, and that debt must be paid. Eventually, they'll be, they will succumb to the mightier Persian Empire. That's what happened in history. They will cease to exist. We learned this truth last week. No wicked nation prospers over a long period of time. God's justice, hear this family, God's justice always prevails, always overcomes. And now, personally, we can have a posture where we sit back and say, well, I'm not prideful like they are. We can be prideful towards Babylon. But here's the question. Each of us has incurred also a debt. We've incurred a sin debt in the face of our holy and righteous God. So the question I have for you this morning, family, is who's going to pay your debt? Who's going to pay your debt of unrighteousness? Because none of us are perfect. There's not one perfect person in the room. But there is one who has come and paid every one of our sin debts if we would only place our faith and trust in Him. Paul, in Colossians 2.14 teaches us that, that only the perfection of Jesus, Jesus is God in the flesh, crucified, can satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And it's, Paul says this in Colossians 2.14. says, Jesus canceled the record, hear this, hear this language, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he did this. This is good news. This he set aside. What did he do with it? Nailing it to the cross. Hear this. Past present, and future. Every single one of your sins forgiven. Your debt paid in full. That's what happened when Jesus said these words, it is finished. The second woe, this is what we learn. Babylon has a false sense of security. A false sense of security. 
verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be what? Safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. In history, we know this about the Babylonian Empire. They had some of the greatest fortifications found on the earth at the time. And yet it wasn't enough. They were overcome. Many nations have falsely believed in these things. Their military might, their fortified walls, their wealth, their wealth, their naval power, their even innovation, all to be overcome by something greater. See, my dad, he was so nice to me when I played sports in high school. He said this after I had a rough football game, and he came off and he looked at me and he goes, son, there's always somebody better than you. Oh, thanks, dad. He said it in love. But it's true, isn't it? There's always somebody. We can apply that to nations. There's always somebody coming along that's better. Don't feel sorry for me, okay? I needed that word from my dad because I was prideful. The Tower of Babel is an example of human ingenuity, striving to get that high place, only to have it topple and fall and create chaos and confusion. And so we look, we... We see what the Lord did to Babylon, but now let's, we want to apply this to our life. In our own life, what family is giving you a false sense of security? I don't know what, but we got rocked uh, a, a, coming up on about a year ago, December. You guys remember when those tornadoes came rolling through Kentucky? Okay, a church that had stood, I don't know when that Baptist church was built in Mayfield, but man, that thing brick. Out exterior, you know, rock solid, probably been through weather storm after weather storm. And what happened when that tornado come through? Toppled it down. What gives you a false sense of security in your life? We go back to money. Is it money? Is it enough money in the bank account? Is it enough savings? Maybe it's your career position. If I only get to this spot, I'm good to go. Maybe it's your family name. But but here's the truth. There's only one source of eternal security, and that one source of eternal security is found in placing your faith in the Lord's sure redemptive plan. That is Jesus. We see in that His faithfulness to you to uphold His covenant, His new covenant, and your faith in the one who has paid, here's the word again, the debt that you owe. Faith in the satisfaction of Jesus. We see a third woe, a legacy of injustice. Verses 12 to 14, a legacy of injustice. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Then here's a promise. This is a promise we've hit on in this series. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover The sea. We see in Babylon a legacy of injustice, of taking advantage of people. But here's the truth. Justice will always, eventually, in the economy of the Lord, will overcome wrong. As Paul said, what? God will not be mocked. Babylon 
had built an empire on the dead bodies of their enemies, but God will not allow this to go on forever. Babylon's legacy of injustice will come to an end, right? They no longer exist, do they? They're gone. And their great injustice will be replaced with this, it says at the end, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that God did this. That God humbled the proud. And we continue as people in our modern time to be perplexed why these great nations tumble and and topple and fade because they're built on this, on, on false security. They fail to acknowledge that every good thing comes from the Lord and they fail to do this, to follow the commands of God. Woe number four. We see in Babylon a legacy of deception. A legacy of deception, 15 to 17, it says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Babylon had a legacy of of deception, of deceiving people, and they deceived themselves. They deceived themselves into thinking they were stronger than they were. That's why you see this language of drunkenness in this passage. When someone is drunk, they think they can do things that they have no ability or business doing. They think they're invincible. Every drunkard thinks they're invincible until they wake up the next morning, right? And that that headache sets in, and those aches and pains set into the body because they did some things the night before that they weren't supposed to do. It only leaves a a wake of destruction. And it says that, that Babylon here was imposing this deception on the people that they were capturing and bringing into their kingdom. They were leaving a wake of destruction and ruin and and wickedness. And they caused their victims, the weaker ones, to stumble. The Bible has much to say about how great a sin it is to lure those weaker than us into sinful decisions and to victimize those who are powerless. Jesus would later say in Luke 17, it would be better if a great millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than to let one, he says this, than to let one of my little ones stumble. And then lastly, the fifth woe. They were crippled by idolatry. Crippled by idolatry. Verses 18 to 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Here's the woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone. Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. Hear this. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. In the end, above all these other mistakes and misgivings and sin that they had, their greatest sin is that they were crippled by idolatry. They credited their earthly success to false gods, to wooden things crafted by human hands. Things crafted from earthly material like metal and wood. 
They worshipped the created order to gain favor, right? They, it said in the last passage that they sacrificed to their fishnets. But they failed to worship the one true God. They failed to realize, hear this family, there's no power in the created things. There's only power in the name of Jesus. And the Lord, at the end of this section, He he reminds us of where He is. It's a picture of sovereignty, of God's reign. It says, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. We see the sins of, of Babylon and the faithfulness of God to remain constant and unchanging in his, his attributes. Specifically, here we see the holiness of God and we see the justice of God. Now, we can, Christians in America, and that's, that's our context that we're preaching to you here this morning. You're like, man, this is, a, this is a weighty message. Okay, good news is coming. But what, what can we do with this? Nationally, we can take heed of, of Babylon's fall and seek the will of God for our nation. That should be a prayer that we have for our country, that we would seek the Lord's face, that a desire of our heart would be that every person across America would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That every person would seek the face of God. And so that's our our commission, our mission as Christians. But two, is also the way that we live that we would live in a way that is counter to the downfall of Babylon. We live not accumulating sinful debts that we can never repay. We place our only confidence in the security of God. And we do this. We should, family, do this. We should speak and act against injustices in our society. They should burden us when we see less thans treated as less thans. Our hearts should be broken for that. We run from deceptive and intoxicating desires, and we kill the sin of, our, of idolatry in our lives. Moreover, the, these grim reminders of what is to come of injustice, pride, deception, and idolatry should drive us to our last question. Our last question is this. What do we do? What do we do now with a passage like this? What do we do? Be people of this. Compassion and humility. I added this one at about 4.30 a.m. this morning when I was wrestling around with this text in my head. Hope. Write hope on there. Be people of compassion and humility and hope. Remember the practical advice and the promises of Habakkuk. Three verses. It's the, the foundational text of this prophecy is this, but the righteous shall live by his faith, right? His confidence and trust in the sure plan of God. We remember the promise of the Lord, for the earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that expansive promise that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. And then lastly, that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's a position. It's where Jesus is. He's reigning over all things. These verses now are the backdrop of, for our final analysis this morning. Our question, what do we do? What we're going to do as we wrap up this morning, we're going to compare Jesus, King Jesus, with an earthly king, Nebuchadnezzar. You guys ever heard of King Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel? Okay, he is the king of what? 
Babylon. What nation are we dealing with this morning? Babylon. So we're going to compare the earthly king, Nebuchadnezzar, with our eternal king, Jesus. We're going to examine one passage from Daniel. But I got homework for you guys this, this morning. Okay, pull your pen out. We're not done yet. I know you got all your fill in the blanks and you're wrapping up. You're putting it in your purse or your Bible. Pull it back out. Here's your homework. Read this week Daniel chapter 1 through chapter 6 and you're going to find out what happened to Babylon. Here's one example. I'm going to give you context first before we get into Daniel uh, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar at this time is the most powerful man in the world. He's the king of the most powerful nation. He's leading the most powerful nation. And he has a dream. Okay, And it's not like Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. He, he's got a dream that pertains to him and he can't interpret it. There's only one person that can interpret it. It just so happens to be a Hebrew exile in the land of Babylon. His name is what? Daniel. Okay, Why is he in Babylon? Because all this stuff has come to pass that Habakkuk's been talking about. God's people have been overcome by the Babylonian Empire. They're being disciplined. They've been exiled. They're living in exile in Babylon. And there's this man, Daniel, there that can interpret this strange dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about a tree that grows up into the heavens and then all of a sudden it's chopped down. And the only person that can interpret that dream is Daniel. And Daniel interprets it for him. He's talking about the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is resting in his own power and pride and wealth and prestige instead of acknowledging that the Lord is behind all of these things. And this is what happens, Daniel 4, 28 to 33. So this is one example. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, right? So the tree, remember his dream, the tree, man, it's grown up into the heavens. He's amassed all this wealth and power. He has all the kingdoms basically of the world under his uh, watch and his leadership and his sovereignty, so he thinks. And the king answered as he's looking out on all these things, he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built? By my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What a dangerous thing to say. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. I wonder who that voice is. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Gone, right? That's how powerful God is. And you shall be driven from among all men. And your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And what happens? Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar he was driven out from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. This once great man with all this power and prestige and wealth and military might and fortification, what happens to him? He becomes like a beast, like an animal out on the field just eating grass. Every woe now comes down upon this man. 
Why? Because he was prideful. Because he was sinful. He said, I have built my mighty power, the glory of my majesty. But the Lord has the final say. Because Nebuchadnezzar's power and fame and prestige all comes from ill-gotten gains. Built on the blood of others, drunk on the wine of deception, drunk on greed, falsely secure in fortified walls, and yet the Lord speaks. Nebuchadnezzar's injustices will not be left to continue forever. Hear this, family. God will not be mocked. And here's the thing. We have to preach like this sometimes. The pulpits all across the country want to flower everything up and make everybody feel okay. But people have to hear about the wrath of God. Because if there's no wrath, then the good news about Jesus Christ means very little. We have to wrestle with this. There's a reason why Christians can't find Habakkuk in the Bible because it's never preached. God will not be mocked. Nebuchadnezzar, instead of using his his earthly power for the the fame and glory of God, he used it for his own fame so that he could stand on, on top of his kingdom and say, this is my place, it's my majesty, it's for my glory. God always has the final say. And the beauty is we have a powerful example. Here's the good news. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We have a powerful example of the truly righteous way. His name is Jesus. You ask the question, or I asked it for you, what do we do? Act like Jesus. Full of compassion and humility and hope. Where do we, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus? In Matthew chapter 9. I have verses 35 to 36, but again, I'm reading this morning and I felt the Lord pulling me towards verses 37 and 38 also because I think it gives us a a well-rounded picture of what do we do now with this message. We see the heart of Christ. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, it says, and, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? He's preaching the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. We know his message was repent and believe. And, and he's, he's not just proclaiming, but he's meeting needs. It says he was healing every disease and every affliction, right? Babylon built their empire on the blood of men. Jesus is reconciling sinful men out of the grave. He's healing. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And it says this about, this is the heart of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What was his response? Now he calls his disciples Okay, it's, it's a lesson time. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, what? But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus is saying, pray that God would, would raise up laborers just like me to go out. 
you see the heart and patience of our Lord. We see the wrath and justice of God in Habakkuk, but we see the answer to that in Jesus. Here he is in the flesh, a perfect example for us. Yes, he's an example, but also here's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to do it on our own. We can't live perfectly in our own will and activity. We always fall short of the mark. And we have Jesus who is not only an example for us, but He did this. He lived for us. He lived for you and for me. He lived perfectly for us. So how are we supposed to live? Just like Jesus, compassionately and humbly heartbroken for the weary and the downcast, heartbroken for the lost and those who've suffered injustice that should grieve us, grieved by every lost heart, but not despairing because we know that the Lord has a good plan. It's called good news. It's called the gospel. That's the Lord's good plan, that Jesus came in the flesh, God in the flesh, living perfectly for us, and He went to the cross of shame, and He bore our sin, the wrath and justice of God. He shed His blood, covering our sins, and He went into the grave, and on the third day, what? He raised from the dead. And... Faith in that act, the death and resurrection of Jesus, will save you from the sure justice of the Lord. And Jesus charges us with this. He doesn't just leave it as, place your faith and trust in me, but He commissions us, His followers, to go therefore and make disciples, right? He's, his heart was, was wrenched over the harassed and helpless, the sheep without a shepherd. And he said, the harvest is plentiful. They will come to me, but I need laborers. Family, we need laborers to go out into the harvest and spread this good news about Jesus. That's your job, and that's my job. And so what do we do? Simple. Believe in Jesus. Place your faith and trust and confidence in Him. Live like Jesus. Change the world. And hope upon this, the sure change, this is the last piece of the puzzle, we hope upon the sure change that will come. Jesus isn't just alive, but what? He's coming back. Jesus will return, and it gives us why John could speak so confidently in this coming full circle back around to Babylon. John, a a disciple of Jesus, is given this vision in Revelation. Revelation shouldn't be a scary book. It should be a hopeful book because God wins. Okay, And it gives us this vision here in uh, Revelation 18.2. John just says these simple words. And he called out with a mighty voice. Hear this. This is what happens to Babylon. This is what happens to wickedness, injustice, all that's wrong in the world. Everything that you turn on in the news that grieves you, this is what's going to happen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Why has it fallen? Because Jesus is coming back and he will consummate and fully establish his kingdom of righteousness here on earth. And those who are found to be in him will reign with him, not for just one day or one week or a year, but for all eternity. That's the promise of Scripture.